Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitzis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Elleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Melitzas, and my co-host is Carrie Elleveld. And today we are going to be talking about Texas. We have spent quite a bit of time talking Did about you say Arizona. Texas? Texas. We've been talking <laughs> a lot about Arizona and about Georgia, and we even have spent maybe an inordinately amount of time on Mississippi. Mississippi's a state that that I definitely see as a state that uh, is potentially a purple to blue state, but like in a decade. Like I'm thinking long term, right? So it's, a t- it's time right now to look at a state that is a hopefully, hopefully a much shorter uh, turnaround time or time to turn blue than Mississippi or South Carolina and- and a state that would absolutely blow up the map. I mean, it would just ruin the Republican map if 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 Democrats could turn Texas. Yeah, there's no map possible in which Republicans win the presidency if they win, if they lose Texas. It is I mean, it's not mathematically impossible. It's pretty much practically impossible. I mean, you're looking at the big, the five big states, right? Number one is California, solidly Democratic. Number two is Texas, which has been a Republican stronghold and has balanced out California to a great uh, extent. Third is Florida, the ultimate battleground state that always seems to fall just on the side of red. Never trust Florida. Never Never trust trust Florida. (laughs) But then after that, you're looking at New York and you're looking at Illinois, two really solid Democratic states. And if you go down the list of the top 10, you got states like Georgia, you got states that are already trending in our direction, right? But you're looking at those big five states and there is a world in which Democrats could actually lock up uh, California and Texas. And really at that point, the presidency is uh, barring some kind of massive scandal or weird sort of dynamics in a normal election. I don't see how Republicans can win a national election without Texas. Right. Assuming we're a democracy. <laughs> the biggest I mean, seriously, like, it, you know, assu- yeah. Assuming that that, you know, Republicans don't manage to work a number on us and, and votes no longer, you know, should yeah. we have some sort of performative vote the way like Russia does or something, you know. So if you want to sort of get an idea where Texas is going in 2012, when uh, when Barack Obama was running for reelection against uh, Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney won that state. Republicans won that state by 16, 17 points. Hillary Clinton, four years later in 2016, as unpopular and divisive as she was, uh, Hillary Clinton lost the state by nine. And that was sort of a kind of a bit of a wake up call. Right. Still a pretty, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty safe Republican victory. But that gap had almost split in half. Right. It was, it was coming down fast. Joe Biden last year only lost the state by five and a half points. And there wasn't really much of an investment in the state, right? So this is sort of its natural dynamics without any national investment. Today, we're going to be talking to an organization that's really focused on, on you know, organizing people. And we're going to, it's going to be an amazing discussion because what these people are doing is nothing short of phenomenal. So let's yeah. remember too, that Cruz just barely won re-election. Wasn't it by two points or something that he ended up beating out uh, Beto O'Rourke? Is that... 
Yeah, it was it was it was, it was slimmer it was than five. Points. Yeah, it was two points. And and from a from a raw vote total, Better O'Rourke lost by two hundred thousand votes, which seems like a big number, but actually it's only two points. It's a big big wow. state, and the numbers, the sort of the demographic numbers in Texas are shifting pretty dramatically every year. About sixty to eighty thousand old white people exit the electorate. They 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 die off. And um, I, I haven't—I don't remember the exact same numbers, but about a hundred thousand Latinos turn eighteen. Now, that means that there's a big shift in a predominantly Democratic constituency to, you know, and a big loss amongst a predominantly Republican constituency. Now, of course, not every senior white person is a Republican, and eighteen-year-old Latinos may be the worst performing voters in in, in Texas in the entire country so it's not as simple as adding and subtracting and boom it's you know we won the state obviously otherwise it would already be a purple or maybe even a blue state Demo- uh, texas latinos are uh, historically some of the lowest performing voters in the entire country and on top of that we just had this weird dynamic and i'm, I'm hoping to get a little bit of clarity into it today from our guests at the texas organizing project latino as a percentage donald trump actually gained a few points. Now, in absolute numbers, actually, Democrats came out ahead, right? Because it was, the turnout was so much bigger that it's on a raw vote total that uh, Democrats actually made gains amongst Latinos. But it is actually concerning to see what happened on a percentage basis, right? On a because percentage it, basis. Yeah. I'm super interested in trying to figure out what happened, uh, especially in South Texas, because, you know, in the Rio Grande Valley area, um, is because, because of it's a que- it's still an open question to me whether Trump just turned out a bunch of new voters, new Latino voters, or whether he actually persuaded some Latino voters over from the Democratic side who had voted for Clinton uh, in 2016. So I'm interested. Is it just a, uh, you know, just up in turnout or is there persuasion there, too, that happened? Yeah, there, there's there's a bunch of theories, and I'm really, really eager to hear from our guests because they've actually done some studies of this vote. Uh, so they actually may have some clarity, but uh, there's several theories going around. One of them may be that just uh, just like George Bush gained with Latino voters when he ran for re-election, it might just be a simple incumbency thing where you gain a couple of points just by being the incumbent. It could be that. It could be that there's a hidden deplorable community amongst Latinos. I mean, that's very, very possible. There's nothing special about Latinos that says that they can't be total a-holes. And if they voted for Trump, I would argue that they're probably total a-holes. In Texas, there's a big chunk, particularly in those border counties. A lot of those Latinos are working for ICE. They're working for border-focused law enforcement. They are also predominantly likely to work in extraction industries, you know, um, in oil fields and gas fields. And those industries are obviously very much Republican and may have, you know, messaged their employees or their workers to, to vote for Donald Trump to protect their livelihood. And that could be a very, you know, real uh, issue, or maybe it just so happens that that there's part of the Donald Trump message and the Republican message that really appealed to a certain segment of the Latino community, and this might be more lasting, and it may be a bigger issue, particularly since Democrats have historically and to this day have underinvested in Latino in the Latino vote. So there's a lot of potential uh, reasons that this might be the case. And so, like I said, I'm really eager to hear from our guests what they have seen in their numbers. Yeah, well, I think we can't, I think we can't underestimate either 
what's happening and something we need to ask them about with the with the voter suppression bills. Right. Because Texas is in the process of trying to do something like Georgia, that they might be trying to make like Georgia light. So it's not quite, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to be the next Georgia. They don't want to, you know, a major all-star game or something like that to pull out, you know, a, a major revenue earner for the state to pull out of the state and relocate their event because they've passed a voter suppression law. But we know that they're, that the, you know, Republican uh, Texas Republicans are trying to do that right now and trying to make it just enough that it pleases their base voters who still, you know, most of whom still believe that the that the election was stolen from Trump. And they baselessly believe that it's ridiculous. There's no evidence whatsoever. But, you know, they, they, they now, because of the big lie, need to feel feel like they need to appease Trump voters in order to get them to turn out because they already don't trust the system. But at the same time, don't want to end up on the on the Georgia side of things. So, you know, I and I know some of those uh, suppression effort efforts. I'm not familiar with all of the intricacies, but I know some of them uh, specifically are targeted at, at black voters in Houston because, um you know, obviously, Houston has a has a high black voter population that's very important to Democrats. So. Yeah, we're seeing this. Yeah, we're absolutely. See, that's a great thing. We definitely need to ask him about those voter suppression. And I bet you they're they're um, working very diligently on that issue because of its importance. Republicans have sort of nationally they've given up trying to convince people based on ideology, right? I mean, they're the party of uh, Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss, and I don't know. You know so and- can I just say something about this that I think is interesting? Because I've been writing a lot about the Republican Party and trying to figure out what the heck is happening there. And then I'll I'll stop and we can get into our guests because I think they're ready to go. But I will just say that the thing that I thought was, that, that was probably was the best summa- summation I could find on what's going on with the Republican Party right now came from a writer at the Bulwark named John, Jonathan V. Last. And I don't follow him regularly, but he, he said the Republican Party is now a lifestyle brand. And not a political party, not something where the base voters, particularly the Trumpers. Now, I think this just, you know, could decimate Republicans with suburban voters personally, but where the base voters, the Trumpers aren't looking for political outcomes as much as they're just looking for something that, you know, draws blood from Democrats, owns the libs, you know, that kind of thing. Like they're not really looking for policies. They just want stunts. They just want, you know, vitriol and that's it. And it's a lifestyle brand. And when I started thinking about Republican Party like that, I was like, it is. That's what it is now. It's a lifestyle brand. It's not a party that's offering any solutions to any problems whatsoever. I mean, they literally thought that buying Dr. Seuss books was somehow like sticking it to the libs <laughs> as if we care if they buy Dr. Seuss books and as if green and green eggs and ham was any remotely controversially right that wasn't the that wasn't the the issue so um but you know as long as they're doing that they weren't organizing against the uh, recovery act they're not organizing against the infrastructure bill so i'm almost kind of happy that they're they're doing that bit of uh, whatever that lifestyle thing that they've got going because it's so by abandoning a policy and ideology basis for their for their party it makes it easier for democrats to govern ironically does it make it easier to win elections we're going to find out I think, you know, that's an open question. And uh, I think this is a good time then to bring on our guests for today. They are Michelle Tremillo 
She is the executive director of Texas Organizing Project. And Brianna Brown, she is the deputy director of the Texas Organizing Project. So the Texas Organizing Project was founded in 2009 and organizes Black and Latino communities in Dallas, Harris, and Bear counties at San Antonio with the goal of transforming Texas into a state where working people of color have the power and representation they deserve. They have more than 285,000 members and supporters who help lead their direct action organizing, grassroots lobbying, and electoral organizing. And I definitely want to talk about all three of those components because they're all so critically important. So, Brianna and Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. We're, we're excited to be here. So let, we'll start with the easy question, right? Tell us a little bit about your organization and what, the origin story of the Texas Organizing Project. I think uh, the easiest way to describe it, the way that we describe it, our members love to describe it, is that at top we fight with two fists. Um, our first fist is our people power fist. That is our year-round community organizing on a racial and economic justice agenda. Um, as you mentioned in the intro, you know our uh, primary focus is on organizing Black and Latino families to come together to build power together to transform our state. Uh, the issues that we work on include ending mass incarceration, immigrant rights, education justice, housing justice, access to health care, economic justice issues uh, like living wages, paid sick leave. Um, and more recently, we've started to work on climate justice issues as well. Um, our second fist is our political power fist. Um, that is at election time, we run large scale voter mobilization programs tied back to that racial and economic justice agenda. We focus on growing the electorate, again, in particular in black and Latino communities to uh, build uh, the number of people voting so that ultimately we can transform our state and it will be transformed by the majority of us that live here. And in 2020, we ran our largest election program ever, even, even in a pandemic. Uh, we reached out to 1.9 million voters of color across the state, turned out about 900,000 of them, about 450,000 of them had not cast a ballot in 2016, and about 350,000 of those had not cast a ballot in either 2016 or 2018. So again, for us, it's always about growing our representation and growing the number of us uh, participating in our democracy. So Michelle, and I'm going to ask this of both of you guys. Michelle, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to to you know into activism generally, and at the Texas Organizing Project. So I'm going to let Brianna go first this time. Okay, Brianna. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I knew she was going to do that. Uh, the way that I describe like my entry is really because I grew up in a really Afrocentric household and it was a couple different threads, right? So my mom kind of was bougie black, right? Her mom was a vice president of a, of a HBCU in Austin and my dad's family were sharecroppers from Crendon County, uh, Arkansas. Uh, and so our household, I, there was never a time that I grew that I did not understand that I am black and that blackness had a political identity. All my dolls were black our greeting cards, my mom would color them in, <laughs> right, before there was like mahogany. Um, we had every black magazine come into the house, Essence, Ebony, Jet, Merge, everything. And, you know, one of my most vivid memories when I was growing up was when Jesse Jackson was running for president in, 20, in 1988. I got to skip school. We went to the rally. We went to IHOP before. I had a little piece of sausage in my pocket. 
And I still remember what it feel, felt like to be in that room with mostly black folks wrapped in, you know, Jesse's every word. Uh, and that feeling has never left. So I've always known that I'm going to be in the game off. You the had end. no choice. <laughs> I, had, I really did. I had no choice whatsoever. And then, you know, it's amazing to be able to do this work at home. You know, both me and Michelle are fourth generation Texans. I take this work very personally. Texas is as much mine as it is Abbott's or Patrick's or any of uh, any of his cronies, right? So yeah, this work is in my DNA, um, and feel really honored and privileged to be able to do it, you know, as a vocation. That's pretty awesome, Michelle. Is your story that exciting? Oh, <laughs> none of the stories I tell are as exciting. As the ones <laughs> oh, I was um, excited by your intro. I thought it was great. Thank you. Um, you know, well, as Brianna mentioned, uh, I'm fourth generation Tejana. My uh, great grandmother. Uh, immigrated from Matamoros, Mexico, which is just on the other side of the bridge from Brownsville, Texas. Uh, that's where my mother was born. Uh, my grandfather was in the military. So at some point uh, they moved to San Antonio, which is military city, USA. Um, they moved to San Antonio and that's where I was born. So um, fourth generation Tejana, um, I would say um, I did not grow up in a household that talked about politics. Um, it was, um, you know, my mother, um, her first language was Spanish. Uh, she had an eighth grade education. Um, I can remember living in eight different places by the time I was eight years old. Like we were, um, we had a lot of economic instability uh, growing up and um, finally settled in, in HUD housing, HUD subsidized housing when I was eight. And, um, you know, I was this really good student. I got a scholarship to go to Stanford. And, um, you know, when I got to Stanford, I realized um, two things. You know, one, I had always understood that I was poor. Um, what I had not understood was that everyone else in my neighborhood was also poor, right? Everybody in my school was also poor. Like, I didn't, until I saw wealth, I didn't understand. I hadn't begun to understand poverty. So that's like one thing that I learned at Stanford. The other thing was there were not a whole lot of kids with a background like mine that I came across and that I was an exception to a rule. And um, I think that is what planted the seed for me to um, eventually, I have like a meandering sort of initial few years post-college, but, um, you know, and I actually also have a Jesse Jackson story, you know, um, because... <laughs> I Did you have college. a piece of sausage in your pocket? No, no. Because <laughs> I love that detail. I was like, yeah, bring the sausage. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Um, I was walking from class one day and he was giving a, um, there was a rally um, in the big white plaza, it's called. And, um, and I was walking and so I stopped because it's Jesse Jackson. And, you know, he was talking about how important it was to register to vote and, and where I was going to sleep tonight was where I should be registered to vote. And, you know, I wasn't registered. So I, because of Ooh. Jesse Jackson, I registered wow. to vote. Uh, that very day I went to the table and registered. But, you know, eventually I answered an ad in the paper that was as simple as uh, want to work for social justice. And I said, yes, I do. Yeah. And that is how my community organizing career began uh, 19 years ago. Let me, can, can I start out with a, with a general question, given what your organization does? It sounded like you made nearly a million contacts with voters of color in Texas. Did I get that? Did I hear that right? It was like 900,000, I think. Is that, mm -hmm. Brad, let me go ahead and ask you, 
Did you find that uh, in contacting voters of color that they had uh, what what were their the people who hadn't voted before? Because you guys have turned out a lot of them, um, a four hundred and fifty thousand increase, I think you said from from twenty sixteen to twenty twenty. It what were their barriers to voting, and were they the same among demographics, or were they similar? Um, well, I think that there's a, a story that unites voters, you know, here in Texas. One was alluded to uh, in Marcos's uh, introduction around voter suppression. So that's one that I want to make sure that we, you know, spend some time because there are some real structural barriers that exist and have existed in Texas for a really long time. Like the most recent kind of egregious attacks on our voting rights are just the most recent. Uh, the bedrock for those are voter ID laws, massive voter purges that have already happened, uh, insidious misinformation campaigns uh, that keep ex-offenders who should be able to vote from voting. Um, so that, there's already this kind of like bedrock. So those structural mechanisms, similar to Jim and Jane Crow era of uh, grandfather clauses, literacy tests, poll taxes, keep people successfully out of the process. So that's 100% true. And, you know, we're on the ground now trying to figure out how to make, uh, you know, there's still time in the clock in Texas uh, to not do what Georgia did or, you know, Governor Kemp did behind closed doors and, and sign uh, really repressive voter suppression laws. Uh, so we're doing hand to hand combat right now. There's still time on the clock for a lot of people to throw down on that organizing effort. I mean, I think the other part of this story is that people are not courting us. Um, you know, what is amazing whenever I look at the example of the other side, less than two months shy of uh, a presidential election, they decided to push through a Supreme Court nominee solely based on like uh, in large part because of the commitment they have around pro-life, whatever that is, right? Pro-life. They deliver, have COVID. They, and yes, I mean, they go to the ends of the earth, um, but you know, we don't always see that on our side, like people really delivering. So, so much of the work that we do is inspiring folks to the ballot box and making sure we're there the day after, which is when our real jobs begin, right? To hold that institution, that elected accountable and deliver. Um, one of the big wins that we had in Harris County, population, uh, where Houston is, population 4.5 million, is around misdemeanor bell reform. County. <laughs> County. Yeah. Battleground than, what, 25 states? Yeah. 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 Uh, was around misdemeanor bell reform. So no longer do you have to sit on a misdemeanor charge locked up because you can't afford to purchase your freedom on a misdemeanor charge. We're able to talk with people about that all the time. And people know, like people are like, oh yeah, I, my cousin, my friend, I uh, didn't have to sit up in the Harris County Jail because, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, misdemeanor bell reform. Uh, so, so we are figuring the, out ways to, yeah. Right. That that was the district attorney's race where progressives got behind Kim Og, correct? Is that how you pronounce her last name? That's how you pronounce her last name. <laughs> that was, you're rewinding the clock. That was back in 2016. That was 2016. Uh -huh. Misdemeanor <laughs> bell reform PS didn't happen until three years later. So... Uh -huh. There's a little asterisk there. Right. So, but it was that activism after winning that yes, DA race, 100%. correct? Because without that DA, it doesn't happen. Or maybe it happens. I don't know. But how important was that electoral race to, you know, uh, to this reform effort? The biggest, uh, the biggest 
races that were important to that were the the Harris County uh, Commissioner's Court, which is like our executive branch in every okay. county. Uh, we were able to successfully flip the Harris County Commissioner's Court. So we have three votes there, three out of five, and we can move a progressive agenda. And it was really having that trifecta on that court that allowed for misdemeanor bell reform to be a real thing. Um, and that, I mean, you know, the example of the work that we've done in Harris County is really a case study for what we, how we want to scale across the state, right? Um, Carrie, you mentioned, or I forget in the, in the intro, just, um, you know, Harris County is a county of color. Lots of black folks live there, Latinos, folks from AAPI community. And every election cycle, we are expanding that electorate. And we are winning countywide. We are winning city, local races. Um, and those have a meaningful impact statewide. I mean, you're getting people to vote for a county level race, which is <laughs> it's a magnitude of order more difficult, presumably, than a presidential race. Right. This is so hyper local. And then you're giving them victories. You're talking about the victories. I assume does that build on itself? Does it make it easier the next time you got you have to get people excited to vote for county level offices? You know, they're not the, sexy, right? It's not no, sexy races. No, they're they're not sexy. However, at this moment in time in Texas, I mean, we do you know we do live in apartheid-like conditions in Texas, and um, considering you know we just uh, changed presidents, but for the last four years we lived under you know a terrible president. So um, the only place where we can impact change in Texas is actually at the local level, and so and and the thing about engaging with unlikely voters is that part of why they don't engage is because it it doesn't make a difference right like actually part of the equation if you want um full participation from our communities is that if i vote it has to make a difference right so that change in policy that happens after i vote reinforces that i should go vote again right so it's this cycle of participation that is critical to people becoming habitual voters. And so to be honest, in 2016, since you brought that up, while perhaps those of us who you know, live politics in a different way, we're all watching Trump and Hillary, Trump and Hillary, what we were talking to people on the doors in September about was further down the ballot. Like we were talking about misdemeanor bail reform. We were talking about um, sight and release. We were talking about if we elect this sheriff, he will uh, pull out of the 287G uh, ICE agreement, right? Like we were talking about real tangible things. And that's that using from city police to round up uh, undocumented immigrants? Yeah, and yeah. the county level. So this was a, this was okay. a county level office. Yeah. This was the sheriff. Yes. Right. So, you know, um, we engage in our municipal elections. You know, I think a lot of people around the country feel like this is an off year. We're in municipal elections in Dallas and San Antonio right now, May 1st, and our people are working hard to elect progressive champions at the local level who will continue to, you know, push the bounds of, um, you know, in increasingly at the state level, they're trying to preempt everything that we do, right? Like we did pass paid sick leave policies in Austin, San Antonio, and Dallas. Mm -hmm. Like that happened. The, f the first, second, and third cities in the South to pass basic leave, we're all in Texas, right? Like that is like the real work that we're doing on the ground to now they're not in effect. Of course, it's still Texas, right? We're tied up in court. We're, we're getting preempted at the state, you know, all of that, yeah, right? Like it's still, but 
you know, the point that I'm trying to make here is that we are constantly pushing um, what we expect of our government. And we are constantly demonstrating that when we participate in our numbers, we can change things. What, what, I, what I hear you guys saying is that actually the local races are sexy as long as as long as when it you know t- when the change happens, then there's something to reinforce that change. And, and Brianna, I noticed you giving a thumbs up and and I could see you wanted to talk. I do have to ask, since we did just change, you know, presidents, do you think the Biden in this administration is you know, is delivering for, you know, the, the, the voters that you, that you talk to, that you help turn out. Uh, Brianna, I wonder what your um, take is on that. You know, I think that Biden will have the most progressive presidency. When it's all said and done, the Biden-Harris administration will be the most progressive that we've ever seen in U.S. history. And that's saying a lot. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's weird. Yeah. Still still can't believe it. So, and you know, that's saying a lot. I think that, um, you know, one of the things I was inspired by, I know he uh, had an advisory committee shortly after he was, you know, the not, he was officially the nominee to figure out like how to bring in more voices to the table, right? Um, and a lot of like, you know, folks from the movement were a part of that advisory committee. Um, so I think that some of the things, uh, certainly the relief, the immediate relief checks that, you know, folks have been able to get uh, and understand more is coming has been really helpful. I mean, locally, we've been uh, pushing for direct cash assistance for people, you know, post Abbott outage, AKA your <laughs> winter storm Erie. Um, so, you know, we see that at the federal level happening. Um, I've been really encouraged by, you know, the big infrastructure bill that's been proposed, you know, what it contains um, around, uh, you know, commitments around a green new deal, no matter, you know, that there, there are ways that, you know, really showing up for our communities, and going beyond kind of like the lip service. Uh, so I think right now, what do you, I, I think he's doing this vaccine rollout. There are people have that, you're getting vaccines, you know, no matter Johnson and Johnson what happened today, that's okay. You know, yeah. um, I think there are a lot of like tangible things we can point to. Uh, we're as an organization, very interested in the breathe act, um, which is known as the, you know, modern day civil rights legislation, um, that really isn't just about like criminal legal reform, but then also what is that, what does the aspiration look like for our educational system for our healthcare? Uh, so I I think I'm hopeful. And what I know as an organizer is that we got to keep organizing, right? We got to keep the pressure on, we got to, um, make sure he understands it's going to be real accountability, and keep people inspired to stay in the game, right? I mean, that's the game, right? Because 2022 will be a bloodbath if our people stay home. I mean, it's, it's going to be a turnout, a base turnout election. Every election now is a base turnout election at this point, in midterms especially. So you talked about earlier, not just, just a short while ago, about passing great legislation at the city level, uh, at the county level, yet you're preempted by a hostile state-level government, right? So that's really the next question. How close are we to flipping... Texas blue. Uh, you have statewide elections next year. And no, no so, pressure, no pressure, but are we talking one year or two? What are we talking here? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a joke. I'm a jokester. So forget about me, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, sorry, go ahead, Marcos. Yeah. So, so I, Michelle, I guess I'll, I'll throw this to you. Oh. Uh, unless you want to kick it over to, to Brianna, but um, how close are we? What are the impediments? Because 
you, you have Beto or coming within two points in the last midterm election. Last year in a presidential election, Joe Biden came within five and a half points. I mean, the, the gap is narrowing over, you know, if you look at the trends, but we still have a gap. So what's it going to take to to close it? Because I, I see two scenarios. One is there's a trend and we keep getting closer and closer. And at some point, you know, there's an inflection point and boom, like Texas is a blue state. Or we get trapped into like North Carolina, Florida sort of scenario where it's close, but Republicans keep squeezing out those victories, you know, two, three, four point victories. Uh, so where are we headed? Is Texas on the path towards turning blue? Well, so at top, our signature color is teal. And at top, we say we're on the path to turn Texas teal. Uh, <laughs> so uh, and in particular, that's a nod to um the communities of color that are going to actually lead us uh, into in, into uh, transforming our state, right? The, the path forward to uh, Texas no longer being controlled um, by Republicans is rooted in growing the electorate. And uh, it is growing the electorate in communities of color, in particular, you know, Latino and in the black community, although, you know, the, the AAPI community, you know, outperformed everybody in Texas in 2020. Right. So I, I um, certainly, you know, want to acknowledge that and, uh, and, and say, thank you. Celebrate it. Yeah. Yeah. Celebrate, celebrate it. it. Um, and, you know, but it is, you know, your question of, does it happen in 2022 or does it happen in 2024? You know, it is one that we are still researching. I think, um, you know, we're an organization, you know, back in 2011, we did a big landscape analysis. Um, our electoral strategy director, Crystal Cermenio, asked a simple question, who's not voting in Texas, right? And where do they live? And, you know, at the end of this research project, you know, um, was able to see, you know, here we were back in 2011, you know, a 27 million state of population, 254 counties, like, it's just too big. Everybody says Texas is just too big. There's yeah. no, there's no real path. Well, at the end of this, we had a plan. Uh, there were nine counties in Texas, the nine most populated counties um, where the majority of people of color live. We had about 2.2 million people of color already registered, but not voting. And then another mm. few million uh, eligible but unregistered in just nine counties in Texas. And so if we can steadily um, chip away, at this point, we were losing statewide elections by about a million voters. So um, like a million votes. And so, you know, just it takes Simple hard math. work. Anybody yeah. Yeah. in Georgia, anybody in Arizona will tell you this was a 10 year plan. They will tell you that cycle after cycle, they kept building their electorate. This is what we're doing in Texas. Is it a 10 year plan? Cause we've been doing this. <laughs> is it a 10 year plan or is it a 12 year plan? Invite us back in six months. We'll have an answer for you. <laughs> and, uh, or maybe even three months, but um, you know, the data is going to inform us. Like this is, we're a very heavily like data informed organization. And then we go out and we build the relationships that we need. Right. And it's all about scale in Texas. You know, we talked about Harris County being larger than 26 States. I believe one of those States is Georgia, right? Like it's scale. Yes. So we're getting closer. Like you said, we're chipping away. You know, when people were disappointed that Beto O'Rourke lost, we were ecstatic because we knew he had an 800,000 vote gap, like no intervention whatsoever, 800,000 vote gap, like generic, you know, candidate. Right. So to to 
to close the gap by that much was huge, right? So, you know, can we close it in 2020, you know, is a combination also of investment, right? Like there is, I think across the country and certainly in Texas, this myth that the swing white voter is going to save us. And so many, so much effort and money and attention gets put on the swing white voter and we do the best that we can with what's left over. Right. And I think if we had a more proportional distribution uh, in those strategies of the funding, then we would see our electorate grow faster. This is a, yeah. this is a good opportunity to, to let you guys plug where people can donate right now. Cause what we know from everyone we've talked to is that the early money makes the difference, right? The more early money you guys get, the more you can invest and know what you have to work with in terms of hiring, staffing up, building infrastructure. So please tell us where to go so people can give early money right now. OrganizeTexas.org and make sure on the donate link, you click top pack. Make sure that's the one you click. <laughs> yeah. I also, every time we talk about donating to organizations, I already really recommend people do recurring donations. Uh, and because having that steady stream is, is incredibly helpful as far as planning and budgeting and things like that. So I highly recommend if you can, and you're able to, make that a recurring donation and be part of sort of this ground level turning Texas blue teal, 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 teal. Uh, <laughs> uh, effort. So let me, one of the, one of the sort of stories that came out of Texas, unexpected stories in 2020 was that Donald Trump as odious as a human piece of crap that he is actually gained Latino support in terms of percentages. Do you guys have, any idea what happened and whether that is something that we need to be worried about moving forward or maybe it was an anomaly really just focus on Donald Trump? Who wants to? <laughs> <laughs> is that you, Michelle, or Brianna? Uh, I think that's probably me. Although, right, you Michelle. know, I'm, I, uh, I, you know, I get, I get sad answering this question. Um, you know, I think, I mean, there's a lot of theories out there, you know, they all, they all have merit as to why, you know, um, why Latinos would vote for, for Trump over Biden. And I think sometimes they're not coming at the question from the right angle, right? Like, I, I think that there's a couple of things, right? One, only 55% of Latinos cast a ballot in the biggest election of our lifetimes, uh, only 55% of Latinos cast the ballot, right? Um, and so, you know, the majority of Latinos are not participating and are not seeing that change can happen in their lives if they participate. So, um, you know, that's one thing. And two, you know, investment in a relationship with Latinos is has not really happened, right? Like that, that the, um, the, you know, there's a lot of talk about South, South Texas, in particular with Latinos, although we did see it in some of the, the big cities as well. You know, there's a there's an organization called the Libra Initiative. It's Koch Brother funded. Um, they have been investing in South Texas for, for over a decade. You know, they do things like offer citizenship classes. They offer GED classes. They, they build community with the very voters that they want to court. Right. They they build a reciprocal relationship. Right. We did this. Um, it was a nonpartisan study 
we talked to a hundred, a little over a hundred Latinos across the state in five major metro areas. Some of them regular voters, some of them non-voters, um, Republican leaning, Democratic leaning. Like you know, we wanted to understand their relationship to government. And over and over, you know, we found that um, you know, one, you know. Um, we did this great report with, uh, we, we uh, partnered with uh, Culture Concepts and Dr. Cecilia Bailly and her team coined, the, coined this, uh, they called uh, our political values um, hybridity, right? That it, there's actually a hybridity, right? That, that there are some that are conservative leaning and there are some that are progressive leaning and that we hold both in, in, a, lot of, in a lot of cases. In these interviews, this, this came through. And that many Latinos don't strongly affiliate with a party. They consider themselves independent, even if they almost always voted for one party over the other, right? But they, they were attracted to the candidates. And, you know, what we found was that, you know, people who are participating, you know, they believe they have a right to demand something of their government and they have a right to be heard. You know, if we don't participate, we don't feel like we have a right to be heard, right? There's a, there's a, a lack of a sense of belonging in participating in our government. You know, we also found that most of the non-voters tended not to live with somebody who voted, um, right? That like, we have to remind ourselves that voting is a social habit, right? And it is done through, through practice and modeling of the behavior of others, right? So voting is a social habit, right? And so you have um, generations, um, in particular in South Texas and in San Antonio, where I'm from, you know, I'm fourth generation, right? I don't, my mother didn't vote in local elections. You weren't even um, registered to vote until college, right? I, yeah, yeah. She, she did not. That was not one of the first things she made sure I did, right? But, right. you know, many people in this country, that's one of the first things they do when they turn 18, right? So, but not, you know, not so, right? We found in these interviews that we did. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done and it doesn't start 30 days before the election, yeah, right. eight weeks before the election, right? It is a year round. And again, we have to come back to this, you know, we've been talking about it repeatedly. If I show up and vote, it has to mean something, right? You, you, I voted for you. Now, what are you going to do? Right. And, and that relationship works both ways, right? So that elected official needs to make sure that when they get into office, they are trying to change things, right? They are um, pushing forth policies that are going to have a positive impact, that you are engaging that relationship. You know, politicians maintain relationships with the constituencies that they think are important, right? They they make sure that they're in communication regularly with the chambers. They make sure that like, whoever they deem important to them, they are in relationship with every day of the year. So, they're just not doing it with Latino voters. Right. Can I ask a quick follow-up, which is a lot of people look at, for instance, South Tex Texas in particular, and they're assigning whether or not, you know, people were responding to Trump's message or Biden's message or whatever. Do you think it really was less a matter of the candidate's message and more just a matter of this cons this um, uh, consistent investment from, as you noted, the Libra Initiative, or uh, uh, or you know, Democrats literally like dropping the ball and not investing. I mean, do you think this was more about a relationship over time, or a presidential candidate's message? 
You know, I, um, so we don't organize in South Texas, so I want to be careful not to uh, pretend to know more than I do down there. Um, You know, and, you know, my best like educate is that it's, it's something of both. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. I will tell you what we saw, you know, this was our first election without straight ticket voting. And so we did see people in South Texas and in, again, you know, we saw this in, in Latino majority precincts, even in Harris County, right? Like this is, so it's not just limited to South Texas, but, you know, we saw, we saw voters, Latino voters vote for Trump and then go back to voting for Democrats down the ballot. Uh, right like there 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 is there was a choice made right Hmm. and so i think that's you know the the most important takeaways are you know one more than anything we should be persuading latinos to vote and yes we can persuade them to vote for democrats they are voting for democrats even as they vote for trump I remember about 10 years ago that uh, talking about Georgia and saying there are 700,000 unregistered African-Americans in Metro Atlanta alone. And if we were to register these register these people, Georgia would be a purple state. People would snicker and laugh. And but over the 10 years, this this happened. And a lot of it was obviously Stacey Abrams and her ability to get the resources to focus on that community that that historically hasn't been there added. In the runoff, we saw that that black vote actually went up in a lot of those rural counties because there's like, oh, my God, my vote matters. Right. That idea that the vote matters. It's incredibly powerful, particularly in states where uh, Democrats haven't liberals haven't had much of a voice statewide. So I don't think people may realize that because as a percentage, the Texas black vote is, is not as big as a Latino vote. So it kind of gets overshadowed. But I, I think it's the largest by raw numbers right in the entire country, the Texas black uh, community. So we're second behind New York State as far as just like oh, okay. demographics, the right? So we have 3.7 million Black folks that call Texas home, and that's just like you know, kind of you know the number the census. Um, yeah. We're second behind Georgia with the amount of registered Black voters, but because we have so many folks that live here, it's more than what was it uh, more than the registered Black voters in Georgia. Uh, and we have another 700,000 black voters that are eligible, but not registered to vote. So that oh my parallel, God, it's just like I know, <laughs> and you were, you know, yes, we need to do a lot of voter registration um, and we need to expand the number of, uh, in particular, black folks that are going to, to vote uh, in Texas. You know, this year in Texas, two days shy of early vote being over, black folks had exceeded their 2016 turnout. Like we went and vote, like we went to the polls this year. Um, and that was especially true, you know, here in Texas. Um, so when we're talking about the work that we do, it very much is about the linked fates of Black folks and Latinos, you know, across Texas. And that it, it both when we come to like the organizing fist and how we invest our dollars in talking with Black folks during, you know, an election cycle. And so, you know, a point that Michelle was alluding to, not just talking to folks uh, a couple months before or you know, in some instances, because that money comes in very late, (laughs) you know, it could be two weeks out that it really is about maintaining, you know, consistent uh, communication with folks uh, to be, you know, trusted messengers. Just to make it clear to to listeners, you know, 700,000 black folks being unregistered, uh, Trump won the state by, I think, around 630,000 votes or something like that. So, you know, theoretically, if you register all those folks, you're in a very competitive, if not a winning position, just to just to put a point on it. 
And, and one thing we learn in, in Georgia is that small communities matter, right? When you win a state by 10,000, 11,000 votes, the yep. Desi community, the South Indian, you know, South Asian Indian community, it's small. It mattered. The Asian community mattered. All right. these sort of little communities mattered. So the, um, you know, we're running out of time, and I, I, I know we're actually holding you past the time I said, so I really appreciate this. Carrie talked earlier about voter suppression, and so you talked about how you guys are organizing to stop it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this is sort of an existential, you know, fight, right? Our ability, you're already having to get people who don't have a preponderance of voting. Is that the right word? They're not more likely voters, and then Republicans, they know this. So they're trying to put these little roadblocks in there to keep it that way. So what are you guys doing specifically to try to fight that? Right. But some of it is a backlash against, I believe y'all said this in the opening, what happened in Harris County, right? In Harris County, right. remember, that's the county that where Houston is. We flipped that county, you know, a couple of years ago. And there were real innovations with voting, right? Their their budget went from $4 million for, from, to elect, in elections to $30 million. That kind of investment led to things like, 24-hour voting centers and drive-through voting, right? In the time of a pandemic, that kind of like made sense. And it really did in increase and expand the electorate there. So some of the efforts, especially what's contained in the, the voter suppression laws now, are uh, directly trying to thwart those kind of like innovations that are happening in our counties that expanded the electorate of color, right? They're not talking about you know, Loving County population 98. <laughs> They're talking about Harris County population yeah. 4.5 million, right? Um, so one of the things, I mean, we've been doing what organizers do. We've been taking it to the streets. Uh, we have been, um, the last couple of weeks, uh, outside of AT&T headquarters here in Dallas, uh, you know, AT&T following the uprisings made commitments. If you go on the website now, you see uh, they talk about being in alignment with Black Lives Matter. Post-insurrection, they made commitments not to give to folks who were uh, objectors to the 2020 election. Records show, I encourage folks to look at Judd Legume's uh, research yeah. that AT&T has given over $500,000 to the likes of Patrick, Dan Patrick, our lieutenant governor, uh, Abbott, our governor, uh, Senator um, Angela Paxson, who's a co-sponsor of one of these bills, one of these voter suppression bills. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, it's just lip service right now. Yeah, they actually right. have an opportunity to make good on uh, an espoused commitment uh, to, around like black, about around black equity. In fact, if you go to AT&T headquarters today, you walk into the lobby, there's a dream and black exhibition it really is like <laughs> not even just like ironic it's hypocritical no right? and then meanwhile they are like investing real money into these political campaigns of folks that are championing these bills so we're keeping the pressure on you know texas is also home to lots of fortune 500 companies we could call the role southwest pepsi valero awesome. whole foods awesome. Awesome. Google has a big presence here. Facebook has a good, big presence here. And no one has come out. And what we're demanding is two things. One, full opposition to these voter suppression bills, not milquetoast statements that mean nothing, that say nothing, but real unequivocal statements about being in opposition. And then two, stop giving money to these candidates, right? Yep, yep. So Michelle and Brianna, we're, we're actually, we're out of time, but Michelle gave a 
pitch for uh, Texas Organizing Project. Brianna, why don't you close out with another pitch for Texas Organizing Project uh, to drive it home, drive that, drive the pitch home. You know, delivering Texas to the progressive column is a big experiment. It's going to take a lot of investment. Uh, and we can't be scared of that at all. Um, we need big ideas. Uh, and the big idea that we're proposing is that uh, y'all help us build a Texas for all, a Texas that works, a Texas where there's maximum participation at the ballot box, uh, not a Texas for the few. So you go to www.organizedtexas.org. You click on that good donate button. Make sure it's to the pack so we can spend those political dollars. <laughs> uh, you can be a part of this uh, amazing vision to, to transform Texas and make it a democracy that looks like me and Michelle and has our values. Brianna, Michelle, thank you so much for your time. I actually wanted to talk to you about who we're going to look to, like who we, sh who we should, you know, the rising stars of Texas politics. We're out of time, but that gives me an excuse to invite you guys again, uh, hopefully soon, to look at more of the personalities that we should be getting behind. So thank you so much for all your work. It's incredibly inspiring and uh, so much respect for everything you've accomplished and so much hope for all the work that you're looking at in the future. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thanks you for, for having us. Yes. Carrie, I love talking to organizers. I know. The organizers are great. There's never and there's never a shortage of material. It's always like we could ask more. We could there's there were like a million more things that I know you wanted to ask and that I wanted to ask too. And we were just happy to have them, but there's never a shortage. Never a shortage. And I think it's really important. I I think this is maybe obvious. Maybe I'm being kept in the obvious here, but if Texas becomes a blue state, even if Republicans have to spend money defending Texas, it becomes incredibly difficult for them uh, to win in any presidential election. If you take if you start making inroads in the state legislature, which is actually competitive, the state legislature and the governor and lieutenant governor's office. And in a weird twist, the lieutenant governor has more power in Texas than than the governor. Then you have uh, you have a state that not only the People benefit from their from just having a local government that actually respond that is responsive and is looking towards their interests. But also you have a you really make it difficult for Republicans to do the kind of damage that they're doing at the federal level. So it's really important for people across the country to look at Texas and say, yeah, we, we want not only those electoral votes, we want those two Senate seats. We know how skewed the Senate is against, you know, against liberals and, and Democrats and you know, we're not going to be flipping South Dakota and Wyoming anytime soon. Texas, though, that's two seats we can grab. And, and Texas is uh, partly a particularly, you know, we forget this. That I mean, I shouldn't say we forget this, but it's not top of mind for a lot of us who don't live there, that they just had this major disaster there with oh. the, you know, it, it, with the power outage. And, you know, it just I mean, this and. And the grid going down for like a full week, practically um, people not having power, then having a follow up situation with the uh, with the water and whatever. And, you know, it, it seems like a situation where the Republicans troll, control the government there. I mean, it, it, it's competitive, but they still control state government. And, you know, you have to look at that and wonder if people who have, you know, tr sort of traditionally voted Republican are going to start thinking, I don't think these guys know how to govern. Hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. Sorry. I just, no, hi. Don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. That's awesome. Um, 
I'm actually not going to put, put, put her on uh, camera, but anyway, that's, um, Oh yeah. Okay. My wife just scooped her up. <laughs> that's our really, really beautiful daughter. But anyway, um, so, uh, hi, <laughs> she opens the door. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so no, this was Republican ideology in action, right? I mean, you right. had a, a you had a state that cut off its grid from the rest of the country. So there was no sort of redundancy, no no ability of New Mexico to come in or Arkansas power to come in and, and help out. Uh, and they did that to avoid federal regulation, because once you had yep. interstate, you have federal regulation. And then they basically left it for the market. So people were getting thousand dollar bills for right. power. Uh, and this and is then Abbott yeah. and everybody tried to blame it on, you know, the regulator there and you know, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, they, you know, it's like the Yosemite Sam, like it wasn't me, but it was that person and that person, yeah. you know, like it, it just, it was, it was, I mean, and anyone who's paying attention knows that that was an absolute dereliction of duty. Right. Um, yep. You know, may, if you're a diehard Republican who just isn't willing to look at the facts, then that's one thing. But anyone who really wants their power on, you know, they know that like that was that was a result of Republic of a decades long, you know, Republican experiment in in non-government in, in free market. You know, mm -hmm. let them do whatever they want. So you have that. You have the suburbs, which are, uh, you know, college educated white suburbanites are trending in the Democrats' direction. You have this massive pool of untapped uh, uh, voters of color that we just talked about. I mean, it's funny, 700,000 unregistered black voters in, in Texas. It's the exact same number that we were talking about in Georgia 10 years ago. There is the, op the opportunity and hopefully the, the possibility of this flipping really quickly. I mean, Georgia right. and Arizona, the the it was, you know, we're talking about 33% increase in Arizona in Democratic performance. And uh, it was like 31% in Georgia. I mean, 600,000 new voters in Georgia between 2016 and 2020. I mean, the numbers are there. It requires an investment. This I is what right. the party doesn't get. Donors, right. the big dollar donor, billionaire, you know, our, our liberal big dollar donors are not getting this. You need to invest in those communities and in organizations like the Texas Organizing Project. Let me just add real quick that 2022, I don't think anyone understands what the GOP base is anymore. And so any investment that you can make as a Democrat right now in a flippable state could probably go a lot further because we're going to be coming off some at least some legislative wins. And the Republicans are chasing their tails right now, trying to figure out how to get, you know, Trumpers motivated to get to the polls in in the midterms and at the same time alienating a lot of their suburban base and not just their suburban white voters their suburban base which is very mixed across the board so you know this is a good time to be interested to be curious and to be investing in what could be a, a really really good decade for democrats if we if we put the effort in amen carrie that's our show Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to our guests, Michelle and Brianna. That was an amazing conversation. Thanks to the Texas Organizing Project for being so cool. Please invest in their efforts. Thanks to Walter Einenkel for producing the show. And thank you, the listener, for joining us this and every week as we talk about these critically important political themes. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you are watching this or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.